Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, all right. Good morning, C4. So glad to be back with you this morning and want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online, wherever you might be. We're so glad that you're joining us uh, this morning. So I want to personally thank Lori and, and Rick for preaching while I was gone. They did a great job. Let's thank them again. Just an awesome job. And just thanks so much for that. I hear while I was gone, you had a few major snowstorms. I'm so sorry for you. I was probably drinking a virgin pina colada at that moment. I'm so sorry. Don't worry, you can't threaten me. The staff have already tried killing me more than once this week, so it's just fine. Well, we're coming near the end of this really profound series called Sermon on the Mount. If you got your Bible this morning, I'd love you to open it to Matthew chapter 7. We've been learning all year long that the Sermon on the Mount is actually what the kingdom of God looks like in a person's ordinary life. It's actually what the kingdom come is. It's what the reign and rule of God looks like after you've accepted Jesus as Savior and King. And like I've shared so many times, and so have the other pastors and leaders, for Jesus, this whole message is an explicit outline of a normal Christian life. It's what authentic faith in Jesus produces in you over a lifetime. Now, as we're about to near the end of the most famous sermon ever given in history, it's like Jesus showed up at this moment with that audience and with us and says, well... Okay, everyone, there it is. There's the vision, there's the call, there's the gift, there's the hope, there's the king, there's the kingdom. Here's where we are, here's where we want to go, here's the path to get there, there it is. If you've been with us all year, you've noticed this. In three small chapters, Jesus says there's two types of righteousness, two kinds of devotion, two treasures, two masters, two ambitions, there's just two kingdoms. So now he would say is the time for decision. Is it going to be the kingdom of self or the kingdom of Satan, or is it going to be the kingdom of God, the prevailing culture or the counter-Christian culture, to live life like this really just is it, or this life is actually the beginning for the greater thing to come, self-salvation, kingdom come, or no kingdom at all. Now, Jesus is about to give the original audience and us today one choice. Now, this one choice leads to two results. The crowd at this point, just like all of us have now heard the clarion call, the radical call, and Jesus gives this coming choice, which in the end is going to show who genuinely is going to follow him and those who won't. He's about, once again, to crash through human pride and religious achievement and many people's hopes and and dreams, because he's about to say this, that real relationship with a real God is just not found in one's confession, but a confession that's evidenced by a transformed life. Here's what one person said. He said, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired. It's meant to be obeyed. Another person said it this way. We'd all prefer to be given many choices, not just one. Or better still, maybe we'd love to fuse them all together in some blended religion, thus eliminating any need for any choice. But Jesus is about to cut across any easygoing syncretism. The crowd, I'm sure, was fully enthralled with Jesus. His power, his insight, his presence, all he had done was pretty alluring. And after such powerful speaking, Jesus decides through a small group of illustrations to say either each one of you will join the kingdom of God or you won't. And so he uses three little comparisons which corner people to a yes or no, a flee or follow, a positive result or rejection. 
Can you imagine it at that moment? He looks over the hundreds, probably thousands of faces, poor, rich, educated, uneducated, religious, unreligious, different countries, different nationalities, and maybe he cleared his throat as wind came off that lake. Maybe he stood at this moment. Most rabbis sat when they taught, but this is a moment. Jesus, at this moment, knew that what he was about to declare would change the course of history. This is an epicenter moment, actually, in human history, in religious history, and in Christian history, all in one. Jesus stood and said these words in Matthew seven thirteen: Enter through the narrow gate. That word narrow is interesting. It's an evocative. It's a needed word, actually, for today. No one in our culture likes being called narrow, right? Many people point out that the word narrow is, a, is not a positive. It's a negative thing. If I call you narrow, it's a condemning thing. It's a limiting thing. It's a bad thing. And yet Jesus says there is no middle ground. There is no fence. Enter only through one gate. And that gate, by the way, is unbelievably narrow. I remember when my brother-in-law, who attends this church, was not a Christian. He became a Christian in this church during a communion service at Easter. But he spent a year wrestling with the claims of Jesus and if it was real. And I remember him sitting over a coffee and he looked at me and he said, John, I want to sit on a fence. And before I could say there was no fence, he looked up and said, but I know the fence isn't there. Jesus comes and he says these words, enter through the narrow gate. I'm sure the original audience was asking all sorts of questions. Well, what gate? Physical gate? Maybe one of the gates in Jerusalem. Does he mean one of the gates in the temple? But narrow, why narrow? Which one is narrow? Jesus interrupts by saying, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many people enter through it. Destruction is through the wide gate. The wide gate is roomy. It's broad. It's spacious. It's, well, easy. Think about a large street. Think about the Champs-Élysées in Paris or a really beautiful outdoor mall like the Grove in Southern California. Think about when you walk onto those things if you've had the chance. A beautiful boulevard, many entrances, many shops. You can take as much time as you need. There's free spiritual Wi-Fi for everybody. You don't need to put anything down to get on one of those roads. You don't need to bend down or corner yourself in. You just walk in. There's no baggage you need to drop. You just walk. This group, by the way, this road is filled with two groups that hate each other. One group is the, the group of moral conformity, the traditionalists, and the other is the group of self-discovery, the, the progressivists. They, they, they hate each other, and yet, by the way, they're exactly the same because their whole life is about them. I love what Tim Keller said. The moral conformist in our world says the immoral people, the people who do their own thing, they're the problem with the world. Moral people are the solution. The advocates of self-discovery say, no, no, it's the bigoted people, the people who say you have the truth, they're the problem, and progressive people with progressive ideas were the solution. But each side says our way is the world, our way is the way the world will be put right, and if you're not with us, you're against us. Yet both of them are actually on the broad road because Jesus comes along and says, you're both wrong. When you walk along this broad road, everything's there. 
There's the shop of religion on this side that says trust in yourself. And over there, there's the deeply traditional view of many religions. Be very moral. Every single philosophy you can imagine, every scientific inquiry is on this road. All philosophies, all faiths, all worldviews can come here. Sometimes they can agree. Sometimes they can coexist. And sometimes they hate each other. But it's big enough and there's enough shops that you get to choose your own adventure. Everyone's welcome through this gate, and it's wide enough for everyone to walk along, even if they can't stand each other. One pastor said there's plenty of room for a diversity of opinions and laxity of morals on this road. It's a road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries, no thoughts about conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations. That is the desire of a human heart and its falseness. Superficiality, it's welcome here. Self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition. These things don't have to be learned or cultivated. No, no, effort is actually needed to resist them. No effort is required to practice them. That is why the broad road is so easy. Let me put it a different way. It's natural. I'm born this way. Jesus comes along and says that leads to destruction. The crowd knows that Jesus is talking about the afterlife. It's a majority Jewish audience. He knows he's talking, they know he's talking about the end of time itself. See, destruction comes after judgment. It is when God will ratify our relationship towards him that we choose in this life. If we want the kingdom of God now, then we'll want the kingdom of God there. If we want the reign and rule of God now, we'll want it there. If we want Jesus the Son now, we'll want to spend eternity with him there. But if we don't want the kingdom now, God will ratify it there. See, what we do here ripples into eternity. Jesus declares that the vast majority of people will go through the wide gate. Of all the people that have ever lived, out of the seven billion that are living right now, of those we will never admit, most of them, knowingly or not, will walk on this road and they will cherish the road, they will love the road, they will defend the road, they will support it, they will promote this wide, roomy, broad, spacious path and gate. It makes so much sense. It feels so right. It's so natural. It has to be all right because all religions and all perspectives can justify you can feel good about yourself if you walk on this road. Jesus continues, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and actually only a few people will find it. The small gate is described as narrow. It's crowded and restricted. It's hard-pressed. It's tough. It's unpopular. The image reminds us, even as Christians, there are limits to what actually makes a Christian and how you're allowed to behave. To choose Jesus means a hard way, which of course leads to life, but if you pick the wide gate, it leads to death. Following Jesus and his ways and his life are not normal. Repentance is and never has been endorsed by most people. It's not fashionable. It's not politically correct. It's never unifying for a family or friends or society. Oh, yes, when you walk through the narrow gate, suddenly you find life and hope and love and second chances with God. Oh, yes, but it divides always. One rightly said, true discipleship is a minority religion. Even today, a minority of the human family call themselves Christian. Out of the 7 billion that live right now, maybe 2.1 billion call themselves Christian. But as you mine those facts, you will realize very quickly that many of those who have the title or the claim of Christian do not truly know the Jesus of the Scriptures at all. Narrow is the gate. Why? Because, oh, right, Jesus is the gate. He would say such a bold thing like this. 
I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. There's one gate. The very first Christian sermon ever preached in history was preached by Peter, crazy Peter, (laughs) foot and mouth Peter. And when he stood up on that day of Pentecost, here is what he began to declare. And then later he said these words in another moment, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. The very first Christian sermon, and then the one later, is an absolute declaration of salvation. Well, as the reality of the teaching comes home, the experience would be like a wave after a wave being overwhelmed by truth. You wouldn't almost be able to recover. The opinions are becoming so clear and so are the options. It's not enough to think or do something. You actually have to meet him. So which way am I going, in other words? What road am I on? Two gates, two destinations, two crowds, one small, one large, no middle way, no neutrality, no third option, no way to be Canadian in this case. These paths are not ends to themselves, by the way, and as the crowd is struggling, Jesus, I wonder if he starts standing again. He's not quite done. He says, well, do you want to know how to avoid the broad road that leads to destruction if what I'm saying is true? Well, then he would say this, you must be careful of false teachers. The Old and New Testament are full of references of those people who look, by the way, just like me right now, who aren't real. Jesus says these words next, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. Do you like sheep? I find them quite fun with my kids at a petting zoo. They're nice, they're kind, they're harmless, they're dumb, they're unassuming, they're fun to pet. They smell, that's true, but they're fun to pet. Yet this is what the image he gives. He says, these sheep go and kill other sheep. Can you imagine with your kids? Oh, look, oh, oh, you know, like a sheep turns around and murders. Why? Because actually what's going on in this sheep is not a sheep thing at all. It's a wolf thing. You ever watch National Geographic? Ever watch a wolf pack take down something and tear it apart? Jesus comes along and he says, these false teachers are like wolves and they will rip you to shreds and they will send you for eternity outside of God's love. Now, by the way, here's the other crazy thing if you read the book of James. Many false teachers don't even know that they are false teachers. The point is, hearing knowingly or not, they lead people to death. Deception is real. So Jesus says to his audience and us today, be on guard. You must pray. You must know the Bible. You must think. You must be in good Christian community. You must see what God has done throughout the centuries of the church. See, title and education and religious dress and appearing right is not a guarantee of orthodoxy or orthopraxy, right thinking and right doing. It was the great Anglican speaker, John Stott, that said, it is not an accident that Jesus warns about false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount follows immediately after teaching about two gates, two ways, two crowds, and two destinations. For false prophets are adept at blurring issues of salvation. Some muddle and distort the gospel, and they make it hard for seekers to actually find the narrow gate. Others try to make out that the narrow gate is actually much broader than Jesus implied, and that to walk through the narrow gate requires little, if any, restriction on what you really believe. And here's a real important one, or how you act and behave. Well, Jesus moves from the comparison of sheep and wolves to the tale of two trees. He says, you may not know who's a wolf and who's not because they look like sheep, but let me give you a hint, he says. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. 
Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs uh, from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you're going to recognize them. Now, recognition comes in two ways, by the way. It's how they teach, what they teach, and how they live. Is this saying, by the way, that every Christian teacher and leader has to be perfect, never make a mistake? No, of course not. But the pattern over a lifetime is what you're looking for, what they teach and how they live. If they do not teach on sin, if they never ever mention heaven or hell or judgment, if they question the holiness of God, if a teacher spends his whole life talking about the love of God and never mentions the holiness of God, or if a teacher spends his whole life talking about the holiness of God but never talks about the love of God, if any teacher questions the unique work of Jesus Christ, if anyone ever says to you that Jesus is not fully God and fully human, if you hear a teacher beginning to doubt the authority of Scripture in some form, you know a wolf is in sheep's clothing. If you hear someone say, well, all roads lead to God, or if you hear other very traditional good preachers say, well, yes, it is Jesus alone, but actually you need to do 14 other things, and then maybe God's really going to love you, you know a wolf is around. If you start hearing Christians saying stuff like this, we have discovered new truth about God, life, or morals that have been missed in the church for 2,000 years. A wolf is around. If they speak all the right truth, if they say the Apostles' Creed appropriately and preach really powerfully, but there is no evidence of Jesus in their life, if they say all the right things, but their ethics, their lifestyle, the kingdom is not present, a wolf is right beside you. Well, back to the story. Jesus now addresses the most important issue facing all of his hearers. All of you today, myself, all of you online. So obedience or disobedience agreement or disagreement, estrangement or relationship. He chooses to use two more comparisons, two more parables to drive home the deep issue. One we'll address this week and one next week as we end. He said these words, are you ready? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not all that call me teacher, Not all that call me rabbi, not all that call me master or sage or inspired one or prophet or one path, not even all of those who actually know that I really am God in flesh, Lord, not all of them will enter to the kingdom of heaven. Every Muslim on earth right now says Jesus was one of the greatest prophets. Read any spiritual leader, they love Jesus, but they do not know him. Many people who confess Jesus as Lord may not know him. Actually, here's what's so chilling about this passage. What Jesus is actually saying is many people who think and act like Christians are not really Christians, and they don't know it. Now, do we need to profess Jesus as Lord? Oh, of course. Romans 10.9 is clear. Paul made this abundantly clear. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What Paul, what Paul was addressing is how you meet him. Here's what Jesus is addressing. Many, many people will acknowledge Jesus as profound or great or even Lord, but they will never have transformation. And if there's no evidence of God in their life, they never knew him. 
You can go at a Billy Graham crusade and put your hand up and say, I believe Jesus is Lord. But if there's no evidence over the long haul, you have never met God. Didn't we say the right confession? Yes, you did. But where's the evidence? Within the same breath, Jesus reverses the coin. And he speaks in the other direction, and he begins to say this. Well, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and and perform many miracles? The day, of course, is the great white throne judgment. That's the day where God will bring every human that's ever existed in front of him, and we personally will give an account to God. And no money, no power, no politics, no influence, no education, no opinion will be able to hide what we were. Now, this is a different group because they don't say, we know who you are. They say, look at what we did. Didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we cast out demons in your name and didn't, didn't we even do miracles? Now, is this just like some kick at the pants, you know, against charismatic gifts? No. Jesus could have said this. Well, we preached in your name, or, or we taught, or didn't we baptize? We gave at church. We sang hymns and Christian songs. Well, I led a worship team. I, I said the Apostles' Creed. I, I helped the poor every week. I, I, had, I had the title reverend or doctor, or I wrote commentaries, or I led a connect group, or I was a member of that church. See, what you need to begin to see here is what Jesus is saying. This group of people have bought into the subtle yet damning belief That spiritual good works, vehicles given to connect with God after you've met Jesus and continue to walk with him actually are reversed and they become the place where you think you're saved. Religion continually teaches humanity, I am good and made right with God by what I do. Look at me, look what I've done, this is my guarantee. So when they face God, Jesus is going to say at that moment, they're going to say, but look at everything I did for you. And Jesus is going to say to both groups, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. If if anything on judgment day comes out of your mouth other than Jesus have mercy, you're done. Now, did you notice it? Now, these words, there's, there's, <laughs> these are the most damning and scary verses in the whole Bible. Great to come back from Aruba to this one. These are, these are, they are scary. But I want you to stop and let this sink in just a little bit more because there's something we always miss at this moment. Did you catch it? And do you see it? Jesus says he's going to judge us. Well, this can only be true if Jesus is God. Jesus, right here in the Sermon on the Mount, is explicitly declaring to that community and to us that he has the right to judge because he knows all things because, oh, he and the Father are one. Why? Oh, because he is the second person of the Trinity. Oh, because he's God. If I was a Pharisee sitting in that audience 2,000 years ago near that Sea of Galilee, I think I would have started getting angry right about now. This guy's claiming to be God. This guy's committing blasphemy. Actually, he's the bad tree. He's the one who actually should be cut down and thrown in the fire. He's actually the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? You are what you're talking against. 
And Jesus says right there, well, without arrogance or politics in his body in any way, without false motive, he says, no, actually, I'm the one you think you know. There are two ways. Now, by the way, Jesus isn't yelling at this moment. He isn't doing the John Thompson, right? He's just talking because he deeply wants this crowd and wants us to find the narrow gate. He's not throwing stones. He's not outraged in the sense that he's kicking down. No, no. He is saying this not out of arrogance. or No, no. He's saying, don't you know, I want you to have life. I want you to find the kingdom. I, I want you to know my father. I, I, I want you to be able to sing a song like we just sang, that he's a good, good father. Like, I want you to experience eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And I want you to be free from the evil one. And, and when you're in your deathbed, you don't need to be afraid anymore. And I, I want you to know there's forgiveness. And I want you to know there's purpose in this life. And I want you to know that this isn't the end. And I want you to know there's a better thing coming. And all things are going to be made right. And no tears, no death, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more drug cartels. No more sex slavery. No, no. See, I have come to make things. I want you to find the narrow gate. Because at the narrow gate, it leads to something you all want. Life. But do you want life? See, that is the question that Jesus is giving. This is why this is such an epicenter moment in all of human history. There's no doubt, as we stop here for a moment, that this comes home very close, if Jesus is who he claims to be and has the right to say it. Many of you join us here, week in and week out, online and presently here, and you're not Christians. And we're so glad you're here. One of our core values in this church is we're always speaking to multiple audiences. And we're so glad that many of you choose, and you talk to us regularly, that this is a place you feel comfortable enough to ask difficult questions and wrestle through faith. Now, let me just say this. This should instill in you some holy fear and hope all at the same time. John Stott, again, so interesting. He said, you know, one way leads to life while the other ends in destruction. One building is secure while the other is overwhelmed by disaster. Far, here it is, ready? Far more momentous than the choice of what you do for your life, work, or even who your life partner is going to be is the choice of life itself. What road do you want to travel on? What foundation are you going to build on? Of course, there's great hope here. God didn't leave us to ourselves, to his wrath, to the demonic, to sin, to wolves, to false teachers, to deception. The point actually here, which is so beautiful, is there's a path. There's truth. There's good trees. There's a sure foundation, and it's not us, by the way. It's not our works. It's not our lives. But actually, the one who's speaking at this moment, he's the one we get to trust in. At this moment, even though we're a small community because it's frigid this morning, he is saying to some of you, come. Now is the time to find life and be assured that you are no longer heading for destruction. One person wrote, Our Lord did not leave this sermon to satisfy curiosities. What he taught demands decision. His word points out that the narrow gate is the way of salvation. It exposes false guides that would lead all of us astray. And finally, it provides us a sure foundation to build our lives on. So have you passed through the narrow gate?
Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as the door to salvation? Do you believe in him as the way, the truth, and the life? Is the word of God your foundation and your guide? See, someday, he writes, we're going to stand before the one who uttered these words and give an account to him as God and judge. And either we will hear, go away, I've never known you, and you didn't want to know me, by the way. Or you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. I want you to wrestle. I'm going to speak to another group in a minute. But if that is you, take the next two minutes and wrestle. Get uncomfortable at this moment and ask, do I really believe Jesus and do I want to know him? To us who are Christians in this room and online, it's probably the majority of us here, I want to pose a question, and I'm not doing it angrily at all. We who call ourselves Christians need to evaluate and ask a tough question. Though a Christian can never lose their salvation because we never earned it, God calls us, Jesus bought it, the Holy Spirit gives us faith, Jesus' words and stories force us all to ask a very important question. Am I really a Christian? Is there any evidence of Jesus' lordship in my life? Is there any taste for righteousness, any want of obedience? Or did I just pray something a long time ago and really... Now, some people get really scared at this moment. This is where people go off the rails and go into like a six-week spiritual depression, questioning everything. I'm not asking for that. Because the truth is, if you're struggling with your faith, there's a good chance you're a Christian because struggling people are alive. Dead things don't struggle, right? But Jesus is asking a question that is needed in our church and every church. Where people who have been in church for two years, five years, ten years, forty years just stop and don't presume the answer. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more interesting word, eager to make your calling and election sure. You say, well, John, how am I supposed to do this? Well, here's the thing. Without fear, this week... If you're wondering, ask God if you're really a Christian. Just ask him. And if he says no to you, don't start lecturing him. Don't start saying, but look at everything I have done. Just stop and say, God, who is the head of the kingdom through his son Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, I'm just asking you, Am I really, truly a follower of your son, Jesus? And if he says no, rejoice. Because at that moment, he's going to say, now come to the narrow gate for real. It's never too late. But if you get prideful and plug your ears and say, oh, yes, I am. And look how many Beth Moore studies I've read. It's not going to work. Here's the other amazing thing. He probably, to many of you, will say, yes, you are. And it will be great joy. See, it's double joy. There's no negative to it if you humble yourself. To those who have not met him officially, he invites you, and I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. To many of us, he asks us to ask him a question that is rarely asked in church but needed without fear. Here's the last thing I want to say. Hope. When we read this, most people don't see hope, but it is full of hope. And I want to explain this. We have actually hope in two parts if you're a Christian here this morning. For we who have embraced Jesus, we need to be reminded 
of this. The change is evidence of his work. And it takes a long time to walk through a gate and walk on a narrow road. It takes time to grow a tree. We all know we live in Canada. Trees take a long time to be large and sturdy and profound. One person said the point of the entire Bible is that all true believers will experience a tangible transformation in their behavior, better in some areas than others, undoubtedly filled with ups and downs throughout one life, perhaps some issues remaining areas of lifelong struggles. Process takes time. As I used to say when I was a youth pastor, Jesus didn't come when Adam and Eve failed. Step by step, deed by deed, Jesus reminds us struggle is okay and he's with us. Because we've chosen the narrow gate. So much guilt and shame found in a church is many of us thinking that we're actually not growing fast enough. But by the way, who set the pace? You or Jesus? Much of the stuff we have angst about isn't from him. He wants to say, I'm on and with you in the journey. I'm going to help you grow as a tree, walk on the path. It's going to be okay. But the real important thing is at the end. No matter how hard, and by the way, for us, We've had a pretty privileged, we have a privileged life in Canada. I don't know if you saw in The Economist magazine, we were just voted the best place to live in the entire world is Toronto. Think about that. We live in the best place for 7 billion people. We have the privilege of that. But we as Christians have also had a very easy path because our culture was sort of Christian, and now it's very not. And it's getting harder. And more and more people don't like what we believe. And that's okay. And Jesus comes along and he says, I just want to remind you, no matter how hard it gets, or tough it gets, or unfair, or narrow, or crowded, or restricted, or hard-pressed, or unpopular, I want to remind you something this morning. This actually is not the end. Life in full measure is coming. I want to end this morning with the words of a famous preacher from the third century named Chrysostom. He was, the, he was the Billy Graham of his day, the golden mouth preacher, they called him. In Constantinople, modern Istanbul, this is what he said in that great cathedral. He said, this road ends in life. The result is that both the temporary nature of our toils and the eternal nature of the victor's crown combined with the fact that these toils come first and the victor's crown comes afterward, should become a hearty encouragement to all of us. See, this is the heart. We choose him because he chose us. And we must absolutely keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the narrow road because it leads to life now in the kingdom come and life later. It's worth suffering for Jesus now. It's worth it because it's true. So I want to give us uh, three ways to respond at this moment. First, for you who have never embraced the narrow road, I'm going to give you an option, an opportunity to move from the spacious, easy, broad, multi-shop, choose-your-own-adventure, broad road to the one that leads to life. And then I'm going to and ask the Holy Spirit to talk to all of us about if we're Christians, and then I'm going to ask for hope. So let's pray this way. First of all, if you're the person who has never met Christ truly, and you want to move from the broad road to the narrow road today, and find life and hope. Pray this. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. And I have lived on the broad road my whole 
life. I'm sorry. Forgive me. For the first time, I declare you died for my sins and you physically rose from the dead and I'm turning from running my own life and walking on the broad road in the form I've taken and I ask you now to run my life and be the Lord of my life. I choose the narrow road and the narrow gate. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I trust and follow you as my Lord and my Savior now and forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. I just want to say as we keep going that if you prayed that, there's going to be prayer people right after this next song. Come forward and let them give you some stuff to begin your journey. Now let's pray about the rest of us. This is for you online watching and listening to. Holy Spirit, you are the only one who knows truth in its extent. It says in the scriptures, you search the mind of God. And so without fear or without shame or without guilt or any form of manipulation, I simply ask for myself and this part of the church, would you show any person among us who thinks they're a Christian and are not, show them they're not. And give them the ability to be humble enough to really find the narrow road no matter how long they thought they were on it. And lastly, I pray for myself and my friends. And I ask God that you would give us a picture, a vision of your coming and your love now so we will continue to follow the narrow road no matter how unpopular or difficult it gets for us. Give this church and the church in Canada hope, purity, Love, life, right thinking, right doing. Help us to have a love for Jesus that transcends suffering in small and large ways for his cause. Lord, do not relent. Keep doing your work in our church. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.